usual, the dulcet tones of Herb Alpert and the T1 of Brass means it's time for another white-hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli, host of Fangraphs Audio. On this particular edition of the podcast, I sit down with James Canningeiser of Amazing Avenue. Listeners of Fangraphs Audio may well be familiar with Mr. Canningeiser's work from Amazing Avenue, both at the site and at their annual. In what follows, I discuss with James the Moneyball Book Club that he's created recently for Amazing Avenue. I ask him about the new Sandy Alderson-led front office of the New York Mets, both about the change of culture within the club and also with the new front office's relationship with bloggers. And we discuss how James got to Amazing Avenue, both his relationship with the Mets and his interest in sabermetrics. One final thing, the careful listener will note that James and I recorded this during the Philadelphia Eagles-New York Giants game of this past Sunday, and will note additionally that the Giants, eventual losers of that game, were winning handily at the time. Stay tuned for my interview with James Kanegeiser right now on Fangraphs Audio. If I've done my job in the introduction, you, the listener, know that my guest today is a writer for Amazing Avenue. Uh, he is the uh, purveyor of uh, White Hot Pro Style that he brings uh, both to the uh, Amazing Avenue website and also um, to the uh, to the annual that they produce uh, from that website. His name is James Cannongeiser. James, how are you today? Great. I'm doing well, Carson. How are you? Uh, I, I'm well. Th- thanks, James. You're joining us from the, the biggest of apples, is that correct? Yes, I am. Okay. And uh, are, you, uh, are you watching? Well, our listenership should know that you... Uh, being in New York, uh, may may or may not be watching the New York Giants right now uh, defeat the Eagles pretty handily. It looks like. Yes, they are. Um, I mean, I'm a I'm a Jets fan, but I'm rooting for the Giants today. Uh, there's no animosity. There's no animosity. There's not too much animosity, especially when they're playing the Philadelphia Eagles. Oh, okay. So, so there's a you can uh, unite in your hatred of Philadelphia. That's correct. That's good. That's good to know. Uh, now, James, uh, the thing I'll say about you, I, I don't want to spend this entire uh, interview just um, heaping praise on you, so I'm just going to kind of get it over with now, and then we can we can get along with the conversation. Uh, the re- the reason you you're here is because I think that you, as I said, uh, uh, introducing you or introducing you briefly, I think you're the the purveyor of White Hot Pros. The the stuff you do uh, at at Amazing Avenue, I think, is really exciting. Um, it, ju- it just just the the sort of risks that you're willing to take and the, the I guess the um, the goal it seems is is one of playfulness. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but uh, I want to say that that's that's why you're here. Um, so, but I, I, and we can actually get started with a piece that that you've posted recently. It's actually kind of a series of pieces, and we can maybe use this. You can kind of go backwards and forwards from this, but you've recently been um, I guess conducting or uh, facilitating a book club over at Amazing Avenue. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, this is the Moneyball, uh, the Moneyball book club. Yes. Um, and you go about it in a way. Again, I, I think that sort of has some of your trademark playfulness right there. But you start uh, early on. Um, I think in the one of the introductory posts, you said there's a good chance. This turns this, this this sort of the book club situation. Uh, this turns into me talking to myself, and that would be fine. You're rereading the book anyway, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, can you just talk about um, why to why starting a book club at Amazing Avenue? Uh, well, for one thing, the the Mets 
just revamped their front office about a couple months ago. Um, they brought in Sandy Alderson, who is one of the one of the characters, if that's the right word, in, in Moneyball. Um, former Oakland A's GM and mentor to Billy Bean, who's the the rock star of Moneyball. And uh, then he then Alderson subsequently brought in J.P. Ricciardi and uh, Paul De Podesta, two of the other main cogs of Moneyball. So uh, I figured it'd be a good way for for Met fans who aren't really familiar with Alderson and and Ricciardi and De Podesta to uh, to kind of read the book and in a way get to know these guys. Um, it's a pretty intimate portrayal of the A's front office and. Uh, you know, three of these major characters from the book are now are now leading the Mets, and uh, I thought it'd be a good a good way to get the fans acquainted with their new front office. Now, uh, and, and I, do, I definitely want to talk about uh, Alderson and, and sort of your take on the, the Mets front office and how and how things you know how you sort of project that uh, you know how it might end up or you know what it's doing right now. I'm curious though, with regard to the book club, um, how. Uh, has it been a success? Has it been different than you anticipated it would go originally? Uh, well, my my expectations were pretty low to begin with, so uh, <laughs> that's a good so, way. Uh, that's a good way to to end up happy is to start off with low expectations. Always, always <laughs> low expectations. Uh, but I would I would say it's been a success so far. Uh, about halfway through the book, um, and you know most of the posts have generated you know, a lot a lot of comments and. You know, comments about everything. You know, basically the the format of each post is uh, kind of a, a brief recap of of each chapter, and then followed by some of my own thoughts on on what's going on, um, and then eventually ending with some discussion questions. You know, five or six discussion questions. Some of them are, you know, pretty serious baseball analysis questions. You know, what questions about date the drafting strategy that the A's employed in the book, and some of the questions are admittedly silly. Um, uh, for example, I, if I can interject, uh, was early 1980s Billy Bean really as handsome as the scouts declared? <laughs> what was the was there a general consensus on that? Um, let, me, let me try to think. The, <laughs> I think I and I, I posted a, a maybe a link to Billy Bean in a in a Mets uniform back in the 80s. Well, he was um, handsome. I, there's no there's no two ways about it. Yeah, I, I think the general consensus was that he did have the good face, but um, but despite that, uh, maybe that really shouldn't have anything to do with how you're evaluating talent. Right. Yeah. Probably. Ba- base, baseball talent. Baseball talent. Now, uh, the, the sort of thing that that I'm curious about with a project like this, and uh, which I think is something um, a reader can find in um, in a lot of your work, is is this sort of implicit sense of experimenting with the blog form and what it can do. I think that, um, and, you know, and I, I think that, uh, you know, you and I have talked offline, um, there are quite a few sort of internet writers who, who are exciting for you, and a lot of them um, are sort of in the SB Nation community, although not exclusively necessarily. Um, it seems like maybe one of the things you're interested in is seeing what's possible um, with, the, with the blog form, and especially with the benefit of having a, a community, a pretty strong community, like it seems you guys have. With yes, we Avenue. do. I mean, it's how, a great community. Okay, yeah. So, how would you describe, even just from when you started writing for Amazing Avenue, like, I guess how you have um, thought about experimenting with that relationship you have, and with the sort of 
um, informality, if that's a word, or informalness that's that's permitted in the blog form that you wouldn't be able necessarily to get with one of the big New York dailies, or even you know maybe something um, that's a, like a little bit more mainstream, like Matthew Cerrone's Mets blog. Right, that's a great question, um, and it, it's a kind of thing where you know our Amazing Avenue is a very, it's a very, uh, I'll say, statistics-heavy site. Um, it's it's had the kind of thing where a lot of the other Mets blogs in the blogosphere kind of refer to Amazing Avenue as the the sabermetric site, you know, the stats blog. Um, but at the same time, it's you know we we do a little bit of everything. You get the the stats-heavy posts, which you know are are. I'm very interested in writing and, uh, you know, the hardcore analysis posts, which I'm really into. But at the same time, like you said, you know, we can, we kind of experiment with, with all kinds of different kinds of posts and formats. And, um, you know, an example is the, the Moneyball Book Club or, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll even delve into like fan fiction, you know, <laughs> so it's, Right now, I've seen that. I've definitely seen that with uh, one of your, uh, not necessarily direct colleagues, but over at Viva Alberto's, Dan Moore, um, has especially taken to um, fictionalizing uh, Kyle Loesch yes. in, in a number yes. of situations. What, what what have your been been your targets as far as that goes? Let me think. Um, I had a post where I was kind of uh, it was kind of Pedro Feliciano's internal monologue. <laughs> Um, I mean, Feliciano is well known, not maybe not so well known to the national baseball fan, but and you ask a Mets fan, Pedro Feliciano, what do you think of? And you say, oh, it's perpetual Pedro. You know, he, he comes into every game, and uh, you know, sure enough, every year he's in 85, 90 games, something like that. So uh, I had a post. It was, um, you know, it was Pedro sitting in the clubhouse, just you know, considering. How he's pitching every day, and um, is my arm going to fall off, and this kind of thing. Um, so just you know, kind of silly posts like that. Once in a while, we'll get into. Um, one of my Amazing Avenue colleagues, Sam Page, who is also an excellent writer. He's he's also quite adept at the the fan fiction genre, um, and he had a, a hilarious post last year's the A Day in the Life of Brian Stokes, who was um, you know. Basically, <laughs> Basically a replacement level Mets relief pitcher, um, but there was a joke at the time that Stokes wasn't was not being used at all by Jerry Manuel, and he was he was pitching well at the time, and you know he was only seemed to be pitching once a week. Um, so Sam Sam sat down and said, you know, this is let me do a running diary of what Brian does all day because he knows he's not going to be pitching. You know he can tackle world hunger and you know. Get, <laughs> a bunch of PhDs and this and that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, just back to the original question, I guess. <laughs> uh, the the format, it really allows us to, uh, all of us at Amazing Avenue, just explore everything. You know, there's there's all kinds of posts. There's not one specific uh, boilerplate template that we use for writing. Right. Now, uh I, I want to get back to to some of your pieces and you know, obviously to the uh, to the present day iteration of the Mets a little bit. Um, what I want to ask you about though is is uh, maybe to get some background on on how you ended up where you are. I guess sure. Um, a couple of things I'm curious about. You know how you became a Mets fan in the first place, and then what sort of took you the the sabermetric route. 
Okay, sure. Um, I grew up on Long Island, and my parents are both from New York City. My dad is from Brooklyn. My mom is from Queens. And the two of them are always Met fans. I guess my dad was a bigger fan than my mom. But um, my dad was always a fan, and he always has had a lot of good stories about going to Met games back at the Polo Grounds, which is where the Mets first played. And uh, always hearing about how he went to the All-Star game at Shea in 1964, how he was... He could buy. He bought a ticket to the All Star game for like I don't know, something like five bucks back then. Um, and my mom actually was a ticket taker at Shea Stadium back in the '60s. So I'd say I was basically born into Mets fandom, um, which could be at at this point is is you know I'm not even considered. I'm not even sure if that's a good or bad thing at this point. But um, no, I'm just kidding. I love being a Mets fan. But uh, so I was born into it and. Uh, I was born the year before the '86 World Series, so yeah. I now, and I'll interject here, uh, just so you don't say anything uh, too cruel, uh, that I was actually born in New England and grew up uh, Red Sox fan. Oh no! Um, so, and uh, actually, probably you know, probably the '86 World Series is one of literally one of my earliest memories. So if you just you tread lightly, maybe as you. Yeah. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll be gentle here. That'd be good. That'd be good. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't recall it. I was just a, a year and a half old at the time, but we do have some fun family photos. Um, I, have, I have an old family photo of me wearing a Doc Gooden jersey, which I think was taken the day of the Mets World Series parade. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a Mets family, and uh, I'd say the same for most of my extended family as well. Just a big group of Mets fans. Now, um, you know, I. I uh, um so I have a stepmother from from Long Island, and, and she as you know she's really she's not a huge Mets fan herself, but she's your brothers and uh, are Mets fans, and I you know and I know just baseball fans in general they don't always necessarily uh, use reason um, when analyzing or discussing their baseball teams. I'm wondering you know if for you uh, when that entered in you know uh, when you went beyond just sort of like. A, Blind team allegiance uh, to something like a, a you know maybe more of a rational or sabermetric approach to the game. Sure, um, I think my first introduction to sabermetrics uh, was definitely reading Rob Nyer on ESPN.com. Um, probably in the early 2000s when I was in high school, and uh, I mean I would, I would go on his blog or whatever it was at that point column. I'm not even sure, and remember reading about OPS and some these defensive statistics beyond fielding percentage and errors and just being fascinated by this. Um, and, uh, you know, I would talk to my friends in high school and say, you got to read this guy, Rob Nyer. He's, he's can really, uh, you know, he can really change the way you look at the game. And uh, unsurprisingly, most of my friends were not too interested in that. <laughs> but... Um, but uh, then, I mean, I went to college, and uh, I wouldn't say I took a break from sabermetrics, but I um, I probably read less about sabermetrics and statistics, and instead focusing more on my studies and uh, drinking beer and chasing girls. But yeah, but uh, so those are all, well, those are all important, right? Uh, and uh, sometimes mutually exclusive with an interest in sabermetrics, but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, since since entering the real world, I guess after graduating college and uh, 
working a job every day. I've gotten just back into intense baseball reading, um, and sabermetrics is just an offshoot of that. Um, probably spend more time than I should every every day and every week just reading about um, anything I can get my hands on, anything anything that uh, help me understand the game more and uh, help improve my writing at Amazing Avenue. Now, back to, to when you were sort of discovering Nyer, uh, and, and you said that your friends weren't particularly receptive all the time. I, I, you know, I don't sort of, um, I don't blame fans necessarily for not getting into it. Um, but, but I'm curious as to what, what set of conditions do you think have to be in place, you know, in, inside a person uh, for him or her either to be receptive to it? Because it seems like if you're ready to receive it, then you'll continue to go in that direction um, pretty quickly, right? And so once you once you come across OPS. With Nair, then you know, then maybe it's a question of like uh, you know thinking about base running in different ways or or lineup construction or any of that sort of thing. Um, what but what sort of con- what sort of conditions do you think have to be in place already to go down that road that you know that maybe uh, you know your friends didn't necessarily have going on and therefore wouldn't have been as excited about it at the time. Right. Um, I think I think uh, the question of presentation. Is is one way of, of uh, is one important factor there. Um, I mean, in high school, if I you know before class, I'm telling my friends about this new new nerdy baseball statistics they can hear about. You know, that's that most people probably don't if they have no knowledge of it, they're not going to want to hear about it. But um, I use Amazing Avenue now for example. We we're starting a off season. Uh, sabermetrics primer series which you know there's there's tons of them out there already on the internet um, I know there's a Steve Slowinski of D-Rays Bay has a great saber library which is kind of a, a great sabermetrics primer tool um, but we decided that we're going to do our own because if we have a, a certain set of readers you know we have a respectable readership some of whom are more interested in sabermetrics than others um, but if you have a readership who comes into Amazing Avenue for the, you know, for the the funny the funny stuff and the more entertaining stuff, if they feel comfortable with the writers for all those, maybe they'll feel more comfortable learning about sabermetrics um, from the writers they're comfortable with rather than from somebody they don't they don't really know and aren't familiar with. So I think the, the presentation is is key there. So you think you think that there's some, which is to say that even if you cover a lot of the same topics as Slowinski, for example, or uh, you know any of those other primers we've seen, you don't necessarily re, uh, regard that as redundant because you think that the the packaging or or the source from which the primer is coming would matter in that case. Right. I mean, if if we can write a post about uh, you know talking about uh, OPS, just something as simple as OPS, and Frame it for a Mets fan is you know David Wright's OPS this year was you know 850 and this is the league average you know it's 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 just a way I think it's easier for somebody who's trying to get more into the into the uh, statistics side of the game it's uh, a lot easier for that person. So so you're talking about uh, doing a primer and um, and we've already discussed Moneyball in which. And I think you kind of characterized it nicely. One of the characters is Sandy Alderson, uh, obviously now the uh, the king of the Mets front office. 
Uh, I'm curious – well, I'm curious about a number of things in this case, but just your general reactions to the Alderson hiring and then uh, some of Alderson's initial choices um, to join him in the front office. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled with the hiring of Alderson. Um, he was on a list. I remember I, I, when Omar Minaya was let go, we put together a list of um, potential GM candidates, and he was on it. Um, Obviously, he has a track record of success. You know, he has a World Series with the Oakland A's, and um, he's especially of interest to a fan or a writer like myself and the rest of the Amazing Avenue guys because of his history of innovation. Uh, he he was kind of an outsider when he entered baseball, and uh, he was kind of one of the innovators of the statistical revolution, I guess if you call it that. And uh, given our blog's mission statement, we were pretty excited that he was going to be the new GM. And uh, we're also happy with him bringing aboard J.P. Ricciardi and Paul D. Podesta, um, two capable guys who maybe, you know, they didn't, maybe they didn't succeed as much as they're expected to in their GM positions. Um, but I, we feel that they're both capable and uh, can be an asset to the organization. Um, and uh, the Alderson hiring, I think, was it was met by Met fans with almost universal, um, you know, Met fans everywhere applauded it. Um, he came in and his his first press conference was just incredible. He. He said all the right things, and uh, clearly an intelligent guy. And I think everybody, media, bloggers, fans, everybody was really thrilled that he was brought in. And now, do you think that they were thrilled because he was Cindy Alderson or because he wasn't Omar Minaya? Um, I, I think I've, I think it's a little, a little from column A, a little from column B. Yeah. Um, especially, especially that opening press conference. I mean, not to harp on it, but. And no, no true offense intended to Omar Minaya, but Omar wasn't the greatest communicator, um, and he he kind of had a history of of uh, stumbling over his words in his whenever he addressed addressed the fans and addressed the media. So I think just that that one fact alone that Sandy Alderson came in and really just lit up the room, um, so to speak. Now, um, now you also you also have uh, Terry Collins coming in, right? Is that right? As a manager? Yes. Uh, and yep. um, I know that that he was sort of uh, you you wrote in a post recently at Amazing Avenue, um, sort of as part of this book club situation, you know, kind of uh, some rules that you would set out for Terry Collins. And uh, I'm wondering what, what were those rules, and and do you think you know Terry Collins is the right person to to uh, to follow them? I guess. Uh, I think my rules, um, if I can recall, it was basically don't do what Jerry Manuel did, <laughs> who was who was the the Mets' former manager. Now, um, Jerry was not one of our one of my favorite managers ever, um, if for the simple fact that my, my biggest gripe with him was his failure to. Back up his players. He 
he had a he was known for kind of throwing his players under the bus, and um, most notably uh, Ryan Church, former Mets outfielder. Um, Ryan Church had a concussion, it's pretty serious injury, and uh, in in some press conference when discussing Ryan Church as compared to David Wright, Jerry said something like, uh, "They're two different animals," you know, Wright basically implying that. Wright is tougher, and Wright will be able to come back from the injury faster. Um, so yeah, it, just things like that were my biggest complaint about Jerry, and uh, I think that was my number one word of advice: was just don't pl- support your players, don't throw them under the bus. But uh, there were a few others. Um, well, yeah, one of them was wearing emo <laughs> glasses, or don't do it. <laughs> is that because I would also submit that even though Jerry Manuel did, uh, so does Joe Madden, and he seems like a pretty good coach. So I'm wondering. Yeah. I think that was a couple people in the comments had that had that retort. Um, it wasn't really a commentary on <laughs> on on emo glasses in general. It was. I think I just don't want to see a manager wearing emo glasses because it would remind me too much of Jerry Manuel. That's fair. And uh, <laughs> um, so so yeah, that, that 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 that's my advice for Terry Collins. And then along with that, uh, I think. I think just simple things. Jerry Manuel used to drive us crazy because he would consistently put these insane lineups together where he'd be batting uh, Alex Cora and Gary Matthews and Luis Castillo lead off or second in the order, and then his best players used to bat David Wright fifth in the order. It was just perplexing. So, you know, just simple things like that to appease the fans. Make a smart lineup. Don't sacrifice bunt in the first inning. Um... And no email glasses. No, yeah, right. <laughs> now, you, with both Alderson and and uh, Collins, it brings up to me the uh, something that I've kind of considered, especially um, since we uh, with a GM like Jack Zarenchik, who who is is pretty good with the media, and additionally is sympathetic to uh, to you know to quantitative analysis. But not necessarily. But has a, a strong scouting background, right? Um, and and then has guys like uh, Tony Blangino next to him, um, who can help him. You know, who would definitely be uh, make sure that quantitative analysis is a big part of the organization, but not necessarily at the fore. I'm curious as to how you see like like the role of the the GM and um, you know maybe as like. Um, the face of the franchise as opposed to necessarily top nerd, uh, and then also you know the coach and just sort of see what his role is. Is, is, he, is he a tactician or is he a manager of personalities? Um, right. I, I think one of the big things that, at least in the New York media, it's been discussing in regards to the manager's role in the organization, um, one of the big things that came out of Moneyball was uh, Sandy Alderson, he had a, a semi-famous quote of something like, "In what other organization do you let a middle manager run make make decisions?" Um, so he was basically saying in that quote, "You know, we are going to hire a manager, and he's going to carry out the directives of the front office." And um, that was the characterization of Art Howe in the Oakland A's days, <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> We'll 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 skip over Art Howe's tenure as Mets manager for now, uh-huh. forgettable. Um, but I think that that dominated the discussion in the New York media and the New York Mets blogs. You know, is 
is Alderson going to hire a puppet who is going to, you know, be on the hotline to Paul DePodesta, who's uh, going to be sitting with his win expectancy matrix making decisions and uh, relaying it to the manager. And everything Alderson has said, he's he's kind of tried to to fight that characterization, it seems like. Um, he hired Terry Collins, who is kind of a controversial hire. I would say, in general, the average Met fan was not pleased with it. Um, What's I'm Collins' okay. uh, reputation? Well, the the big issue with Collins was his, his reputation uh, foremost as being this, a fiery guy, an emotional guy. And um, he's most known, I guess, for his last MLB managing job with the Angels where I think the clubhouse just uh, combusted. There was some problems. Um, I think there was a brawl and some players didn't come out to support the other players in the brawl. And uh, so the, and then eventually he ended up resigning and had like a, a meltdown press conference and this and that. So, so I think the big worry among Mets fans was, you know, we're trying to start over new and, the manager you bring in the last time you managed a, an MLB club, his team essentially revolted. Um, <laughs> so that's a bad that's a bad thing, is what you're suggesting. So so if I mean, I don't envision that happening again. Um, I mean, who knows? But everything that Collins has said, he's uh, he's he's so far lived up to that reputation of being a fiery, intense guy, and. Uh, that's what a lot of Met fans have been clamoring for. The people's choice was this guy Wally Bachman, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who was uh, on one end of the spectrum of the fiery manager. He's at probably the top of the spectrum. But um, so I think in Terry Collins, we're going to get a fiery guy who who has a knowledge of the organization. He's been he spent the last year as the Mets minor league field coordinator. So it's not as if he's a total newbie to the Mets organization. He knows the the minor leagues. He knows the organization. And he has a close relationship with Paul D. Podesta, the new assistant GM. So um so I would say in general that the hire was not really uh well received by Met fans, but until until he starts doing stupid Jerry Manuel things, um I'm behind him hundred percent. Um now, also with regard to the front office, I don't want to, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll let you go after this uh, and uh, let you get to your busy Sunday, James. But, um, <laughs> but you, you you posted sort of an interesting thing recently at the site, and this also has to do with Ald- Alderson and maybe the sort of um, uh, change of culture that he's bringing to the Mets organization. Your post was called Meta Musings on the blogger friendly Mets front office, and this was, I think, in response to a conference call that Alderson had, um, and, and, and company had kind of uh, facilitated for bloggers um, in the in the Mets uh, in the Mets blogosphere, I guess you'd call it. Um, it was a funny post from you because um, you because uh, you were sort of reflecting on a conference call about blogging, which was what you were blogging about. Uh, so th- there was layers of meta. Um, consideration going on. It was, it was very meta. It yeah, was very, very, <laughs> very internet. But, um, but at the center of it was the question of how access might affect coverage. Uh, and I'm curious as to, as to sort of where you stand on that right now. Yep. The, the Mets front office seems to be reaching out to 
to bloggers a lot more than the old front office did, um, which I think is a good thing. But at the same time, a lot of questions have been raised, uh, justifiable questions. You know, what what are the Mets' intentions here, and you know, how will coverage of the team by these independent blogs change because of it? Um, like for instance, the Mets. In addition to this conference call, they invited a bunch of bloggers to their holiday party last week, which we had uh, Rob Castellano from Mason Avenue went to. And I think, you know, it's justifiable to say, hey, the Mets are inviting these these bloggers who are at at the heart of it. They're just they're fans. They're passionate fans. They're inviting these fans to a holiday party to get to meet David Wright and Jason Bay and Ike Davis and you know talk to the players is coverage going to soften? Is our bloggers going to be hesitant to criticize the Mets? Um, totally fair question, and um, I can't really speak from experience because I've yet to really use the any potential access that we, that we will get, but uh, my declaration was that my opinions and coverage of the team wouldn't change because of the access. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I started writing about the team was just to, you know, just to get my thoughts out there. And if if I was criticizing the team, so be it. So if I all of a sudden change my tone and soften my criticism just because the Mets were being nice, I think that would really just betray the reason that I started doing this in the first place. And I think uh, another interesting question, which I've kind of broached on the site, but not really not really delve too deeply into is the question of extracting value from the access. So, I mean, say, for instance, uh, the Starling blogs go into a press conference with Terry Collins, the manager, after games. Um, I mean, the, the mainstream media and the, the TV reporters, they they ask all the, the standard post-game locker room and press conference questions, you know, how and get the same... Uh, bromide answers you know we're going to take this one day at a time and this and that and uh, that's that's just something that I'm not really interested in and I'm pretty sure most of our readers aren't interested in that either so uh, it's a, a question of trying to figure a way to use the access to to really add value to the site is something yeah, to think about yeah you know uh, I was actually having this conversation yesterday with a Fangraphs reader uh, here in Madison and one of the sort of things he was reflecting upon is we were sort of both thinking about, I don't know if you remember um, the beginning of, of this season, uh, uh, Boog Shambi, uh, ESPN commentator, had, had contributed a, a kind of a funny post about Chipper Jones to Baseball Prospectus in which he had brought it to Jones' attention that he had a, a kind of a higher than average um, s- swing rate at first pitches. And yeah, I remember that. It was, it was a funny post. Yeah, it was a funny post. And there was a there was a funny thing where he he let a first pitch fastball go right down the middle, uh, and he kind of glared back at Shambi. Uh, and then Dave Allen at Fangraphs did a, did a couple of cool posts on you know you know examining what whether this was true. And Jones had mentioned that uh, he would uh, swing more often at first pitches, at, uh, you know, against more talented uh, pitchers. And in fact, this this was the case, and it, it appeared to be. A tendency that even if he wasn't necessarily totally aware of it, uh, was still, um, you know, was still actually helping him. Um, it seems to me that 
that this is one of the this is one of the values that you could potentially extract. Obviously, you're not going to necessarily go up to David Wright and say, uh, David Wright, you know, uh, you know, you're you're averaging two and a half runs above average on curveballs this year. <laughs> um, you know, why? You know, you averaged 2.25 last year. What's the what's the difference of the quarter run per hundred pitches or something? I mean, obviously, there's a way to frame it, right? Um, where it's friendly to to a, to a ball a ball player. But the general idea is like it seems as though there is a chance where you could ask about tendencies, right? Exactly. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm wondering, like, you know, what do you think is the kind of uh, golden mean for doing that? Like, how technical to get versus, you know, how casual? Exactly. That's I think that's a tough um, tough thing to to weigh, especially after a game. If you know, say you're talking to a player about the game, uh, probably the last thing they they really want to talk about is is getting really technical. Um, so yeah, I think it's just it, there's a happy medium there. Most of these players are not of the the Brian Bannister um, pitch effects knowledge mindset. So um, so it's just it's something that I've I've been thinking about and uh, we've been thinking about on the site um, just going forward. Uh, okay, and, and last thing before you get going, uh, um, you have you guys have the uh, the amazing Ave, uh, Avenue Annual coming out, I think. Uh, pretty soon. I want to hear about that. First, I want to hear about uh, something I was unable to read, but noticed um, looking through the through the last year's annuals um, table of contents was something you wrote called a fictional season in review. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what what was the what were some of the highlights of the the fictional season in review? Well, well, actually, this was uh, this was kind of one of those those posts where our write ups were get away from the statistics and the hardcore analysis. There was actually uh, some mild um, commentary on the portrayal of certain Mets players in the media and by the fan base um, based on their their race. Um, in, in the specific article, I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek portrayed Jeff Francoeur as a, as a uh, Latino player and uh, and Jose Reyes as a as a white player, and um, Jose Reyes's name was Joe Kings, and Jeff Francoeur became Julio Francora. Okay. Um, so without without going too much into it, it was you know I just I just felt at times that um, these two players especially were were afforded different treatment. By uh, by media and the fans, and uh, I kind of took exact took facts from the season, which were which were portrayed one way. You know, Jeff Francoeur beats a water cooler; he's fiery. But Julio Francoeur beats a fi- beats a water cooler, and he's uh, a child. And yeah, kind of right, uh, kind yeah, of untamed. It can't be tamed. Unta- yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, Jose Reyes. Um, Jose Reyes pushes himself to come back from injury and further injures himself. He's uh, selfish and uh, motivated to help his own statistics. But Joe Kings, the the gritty shortstop, tries to come back from injury and further injures himself. And he's uh, you know he's team oriented and he's selfless and doing it for for the good of the fans. So it's, it's it was kind of uh, it was kind of mild mild. Um, Commentary, but nothing and, too intense. <laughs> and then, uh, and what are we going to be seeing in the annual this year? Do Do you know yet what uh, what you'll be contributing? 
Um, I've been kicking around a few ideas. Uh, it's we have a lot of contributors this year. Um, some some nationally well-known columnists. Uh, I don't want to give any give away any of the contributors just yet. But we have some uh, pretty big names who are who have offered to uh, contribute pieces. So it's um, for myself and the other guys on the site. We we kind of want to cater to the outside contributors first, and then try not to overlap too much of the content. So um, one idea that I, I kicked around, um, one initial idea is a, uh, a restaurant review article where um, Carlos Beltran is part owner of a restaurant here in Manhattan, and uh, Bobby Valentine has a restaurant up in Stamford, Connecticut. Daryl Strawberry has a restaurant in Queens now, and I figured, you know, maybe I'll go check out all these these uh, Mets-owned restaurants <laughs> and write up kind of reviews, but um, but besides that, I'm not exactly sure yet. Are any of those uh, in the Zagat's guide? <laughs> I think uh, I think Beltrons is Beltrons restaurant is pretty highly regarded. It's, uh, I forget the name, but it's on the Midtown East in Manhattan, Puerto uh, Rican restaurant. Puerto Rican restaurant, okay, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, the the annual is will be. We'll be dropping, I guess that's the word. We're going to drop it the first first week of March, right before spring training, and uh, you know it, it, it was a, a huge success last year. I think it was it was really fantastic. It was uh, it was professionally done, in my opinion, or it looked to be like a professional publication. And uh, hopefully this year we can top it. Hey, well, cool, I, James. I, I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, on this uh, busy football Sunday. Uh, to talk about your writing and the the New York Mets. Thank you very much for joining us. Much appreciated, Carson. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excellent. Uh, that that has been uh, uh, amazing. Avenues, James Cannon Geyser. Uh, I've been, as I always am, Carson Sestouli, and this has been uh, a typically white hot edition of Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>